Hi, it's Leah. Today I'm speaking to José Luis Ricón. José is currently investigating how to make science great again. Beyond analyzing in which way scientific mechanisms like peer review and funding are broken, he tries to formulate and propose better alternatives to speed up scientific progress. Currently, he's focused on biology, specifically the field of longevity. We span everything from the uncertainties inherent in working on the frontiers, ways to excite people about biology, and the much underrated aspects of being online. This was the last episode with suboptimal equipment. It's only going uphill from here. With subtle wrestles, but great ideas, here's my conversation with Jose. So, Jose, thanks so much for being here today. According to you, what's the real granular problem that exists today? And assuming that you're working on a kind of solution, it would be great if you could potentially connect that to the work that you're currently doing. Yeah, the area where I'm working right now is usually gets the name of science of science or meta science, which studies science from various angles, from the economics of science, the sociology of science, and, and everything that surrounds science as a, as a practice. So there have been lots of written about in ways that people, like, there's like a whole class of articles that, that are on the scene that science is broken, as some people call it. The There are like various classes of problems here that people point to in, in the science is broken conversation. One of them is, for example, that scientists tend to spend more and more time applying for grants. In some cases, up to half of their time is spent applying for grants. Now, this doesn't mean that this is the most pressing problem. This is a, that's another question because it could be a, a lot of science. It's actually done by graduate students, uh, PhD students, postdocs, who are not necessarily applying for those grants. So th this might not be the, the most problematic issue. Another issue that is highlighted is that of the replication crisis. This is that a lot of scientific research is hard to replicate. This is for two reasons. One is that the, that the original research was not done in a way that, that you can just read the paper and then get the data, get the methods, and then do it yourself and verify that actually the conclusions follow from the data and from the methods. That's that's one case that simply the, the conclusions might be perfectly correct. It's just that you cannot replicate them. Sometimes you cannot replicate them, or rather it fails to replicate because actually the study was not done properly. Or since it tends to be more the case in the life sciences, the data was fake. Since the data is simply just made up, or the analysis sometimes is done in such a way that it doesn't, or rather, it's, it's what some people would call p-hacked, or it's, it's uh, really contrived to actually show the conclusions that the researcher wants to show. In psychology and, and economics, the issue is not so much people faking the data. It's, it's, it's more so that people just try to come up with clever statistical tricks to try to get to the, quote, right conclusions. Again, the, the key problem with, with reproducibility is that it increases the noise-to-signal ratio in science. It adds noise to the conversation. So if you're a scientist, and if you're a policymaker, say, and, and you look at this field of research, you look at this oh, what am I supposed to believe? What is true? If you look at fields like nutrition, you have like everything gives you cancer, it, it seems, or, or like all, all diets work and don't work at the same time. It, it's difficult to know what's going on and what to recommend uh, to make actionable. It's, it makes it difficult to know. Other issue that some people have pointed to is that getting to the frontier of a field may be becoming more difficult. This is what people call the burden of knowledge, that there is so much to know right now that it takes longer and longer to get there. So if both to get into a field and also if you're a scientist wanting to get into a different field or explore things that are around you that may lead to combinations of ideas that in turn become discoveries that might be more difficult to do now. And one more thing that we can mention here has been pointed out is that the institutional setting that in which science takes place, this is uh, um, both academia and universities, research institutes, institutions that, that give rise to scientists, that they may uh, make it difficult to propose and carry out research that takes longer than usual. That, for example, you may have to, a scientist say, I'm going to do this research. In five years, I have to have some results. You cannot say, I give you money, and then in 20 years, we'll see uh, what happened. This is also something that I've been looking into to, to what extent it's a problem and in which conditions it can be a problem. So yeah, it's a very, there are like, in a way that science is broken in multiple ways, it's good because it means that there are many ways in which we could be doing better than what we're doing right now. And so what are precisely in the corner that you're working in, science of science, the problems that you're trying to solve right now? Which of these like wide array of problems are you trying to tackle at the moment? Yes, the places where, uh, where currently I'm trying to focus on are perhaps a broader research program. But the idea I'm trying to think about is what does the perfect research ecosystem look like? I think suppose you were, you were to design science, as in the, the, the institutions of science. You could say, okay, we're going to have fellowships for individuals, and we're going to award them in this way, we're going to have lotteries, we're going to give money to researchers at randomly, how much money are we going to give there? We're going to, are we going to even try to, you have metrics, if we're going to have metrics to measure scientists, what metrics are we going to be using? 
and to measure productivity. That those are journals should we have journals as they are now? Should we change them? How should we change them? Those kind of things. I think I'm less concerned about reproducibility in science. I think you could see the problem, put the problem of science in, in two classes of problems. One, one is increasing the efficiency of getting discovering knowledge and other another class of problems is uh, perhaps just producing newer and better ideas and enabling those ideas that are not happening now to, to occur. Both things I think are interesting. I wanted to focus uh, ultimately on both ends. And I've also done some work in the past to try to, to build tools to get around this problem. So for example, one example here would be Suppose you get to a new field and you want to know, ideally, there should be all the latest research in one place. It's like in Wikipedia. In Wikipedia, you can go and you can get a reasonable overview of, of one general field. Now, if there was something like this in science, you could get up to speed uh, way quicker. And you wouldn't have to have lots of people coming up with systematic reviews uh, month after month. It's like lots of man hours put into doing reviews of um, that are, to some extent, similar. Likewise, it would also be very interesting if we could have tools that can either tell you this is more, more speculative, but who's going to be successful in, in science that looks at someone's, like, ultimately, so we, we have right now people that are making those decisions, people that say, okay, this person is promising, let's fund them. Can we do that algorithmically? Because the, it's, it's impossible to, to, to assess hundreds of thousands of people for these awards. Uh, so we cannot scale that. But if we could have some way of either screening those people or, or just like giving grants algorithmically, that would be great. That would enable us to discover these hidden gems that are not noticed there right now. So you touched upon that a little bit right now in your response as well. But I'd be super interested in what to you is like the most fascinating idea of your field on a more meta level, like the general philosophy behind it and the importance of investigating progress this way. What idea got you hooked or thinking that this is a promising field to work in? Yeah, in general, I think the uh, within field, like I kind of see myself within this broader current of progress studies. And I guess the, the, the idea here is that uh, progress is not uh, just like something that happens magically. It's like something that you look at some charts from our rolling data and you see that, oh, like they are going up and good things are getting better and bad things are uh, getting better as well. But no, it's actually the fact is we can actually influence these trends that actually the natural evolution and the changes that came with it, they were not they didn't randomly happen just because. And likewise, the reason we don't have faster progress right now, it's a conscious choice. It's not that we are stuck and we have to live with it. So basically, that's the idea that we can change the course of, of the whole economy and science if we want it. So now, of course, single person, just themselves, just do it. But if you have a, a movement of people that, that says, like, yes, this can be done and should be done, that can be quite powerful. Yeah, I think especially progress studies, it's such a nascent field still, but it's been growing quite continuously. And I think once you assign this label to it as a field of progress studies, a lot of separate efforts from the past years that people were pursuing independently from one another, they get tied into one coherent field where people can unite and hopefully progress will be continuing faster this way. Do you think also on the whole progress studies paradigm, are we making good progress there right now? Like looking back a couple of years, how would you say things have evolved? Because you've been pretty active, as I understand it, in dissecting progress and kind of innovation on the history of innovation in the past as well. So you might know. Yeah, so progress studies, as such as in the, the label progress studies, appeared in 2019, around July, with an essay that Patrick Collison and Tarek Cowan wrote. Um, there was, of course, prior to these people that were interested in progress, in economics, and, and in history. And so in, in general, I think if we took from 2019 to now, or if we take from like the beginning of history to now, I think the if we go to like the broader science of science uh, world, I think that began with Polish sociologists in 1935. That's, that's when scientists began to look at themselves as a, as a kind of a... A thing. I think some progress has, has been made, but a, a lot remains. And the reason is that in the social sciences and e economics and psychology and as well science of science, the most clear cut way to see that something actually works is that if it's a randomized control trial. And funding agencies have been very reluctant to do that, to, to say, okay, we're going to not, not just like randomized funding, but say instead of doing this thing, uh, let's say instead of having a committee picking who would research and give money to them, we're going to pick good researchers and then on purpose not give them money to see if that money we're giving them actually does something for them. Because, because maybe we're just giving money to them, but they're good anyway, so they're going to do the same research regardless of what we're doing. Uh, in, in that regard, we have not made much progress on that side of science. I think there has been having historically lots of progress in, understa in understanding. If we break down progress in, in kind of various families of things, we have, let's say, the philosophy of progress, what is progress, the history of progress, how we got here, and what has enabled progress to, to, to occur until now. 
we also have progress in the sense that individual technologies have made progress. We have made progress in say gene editing, for example, or back then we made progress in steam engines. I think we have also made progress across all, all of those. I think there are, of course, lots of papers published within the discipline of, of economics that look at police advances in, in general. I think perhaps the we have solutions and we have proposals for solutions that we are maybe are lacking on are in implementation and testing of, of those solutions. Partly because it's, it's difficult to change a whole innovation ecosystem just by saying something. You have to usually convince policymakers, people in the industry, you need a big effort to actually make, make changes. Now, if, if we make it, if we make the, make, make, make the question progress in progress studies since 2019, I think there has been more progress there in that there is, there is more of a community now around progress studies. There's chat that was created as well. There's been, there's a, there are newsletters now. There's Nintil, of course, is now full-time uh, working on progress studies, my, my blog. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that there were some plans of having some kind of conference of progress studies, but uh, then we got COVID, so that probably wasn't happening. But I would not be surprised if uh, within, let's say, one or two years, we'd have some kind of meetup online or otherwise to talk progress studies uh, as a discipline, or even perhaps a journal of progress studies that has been discussed uh, once or twice. Yeah, I think for us, it's two years old. I think it's not that bad, although, of course, applying the idea of progress to ourselves, like we could always be making more progress than we are right now. But what do you have to say is the biggest bottleneck as of right now, as you're saying this in 2021? Perhaps to some extent, lack of people that are actively interested in it. I guess the role of progress studies is that, sure, you have, you have economists, you have historians, you have people that happen to be interested in one narrow technology. But you probably need someone that works across all of that. So it's like you can, in, in economics, you can abstractly think about like productivity. But what is the productivity if you're not looking at specific technologies that are evolving and understand why those things are making changes? You can see and you can see a quantity going up and down and see and just that the economy of a sector is getting worse or better. But why is a question that if you don't understand the underlying technologies, it's difficult to know. But I'm confident that we will see soon, not just writings about progress and how we got here and so on, but actually more solid prescriptions of we should do these things or these things sh should work and we should be trialed. And then more collaborations with, with think tanks to put out a white papers to actually propose actions that could be implemented and tests that may get us out of this great productivity stagnation. That makes a lot of sense. I guess tying into that as well, what do you wish more people would realize about your field? Kind of framework shifts maybe that the average person looking at the field from outside might not consciously realize and you're working full-time on this what is like the most underappreciated aspect of your field or maybe the most underexplored idea and the explore idea there are of course like a lot of ideas have been explored but as i said many have not been really tested so for example take the idea of lotteries we haven't really seen that at scale we haven't seen either someone saying okay instead of lotteries we're going to use an algorithm to pick researchers to give the money to and then not have any human judgment. Just to see why if it works, no one has tried that either. So it's, it's quite, quite tricky. They're like repeatedly calls to do more experiments in science and science, but then we just don't see many of them done. <laughs> so you'd say a central bottleneck still also, of course, is funding of large scale efforts. Yeah, yeah, funding of, uh, of experimentation, because I think one can theorize as much as, as one wants, but then if you put it in practice, it's just like pretty metaphysics. It's not something tangible that you can say confidently, okay, this worked, but this didn't work. Actually, you can try to use some econometric techniques to see more or less infer if something worked or not. But it's not the same. It's not as solid as actually doing a, a proper trial of, of that. And you were saying that you think a lot of people aren't necessarily too interested in the whole science of progress as of yet. I would be curious to hear you maybe theorize, even if you cannot test it right now, what do you think is a reason why, or, or multiple reasons why that is? Do you think it's, it's a lack in education about progress or otherwise? I guess a combination of things. One is that as a field, like there is no like bachelor's or PhD degree in progress studies right now. I guess in, in some sense, uh, back a few, maybe decades ago, there was no PhD in climate science, and they were climate scientists, but there was uh, it was something that you became uh, came to through other roads. Like you could be an earth science scientist or someone interested in the ocean or the atmosphere, and then eventually, and then you become a climate scientist by putting together all this interest around climate. Now there are there are of course PhDs in climate science. Um, progress studies is the same. Like you can come to progress studies through economics or through history or through this STS, which is a field that it's to probably related to, to progress studies. So that's one end. On the other end, other group of people that could jump into progress studies that are people that are more independent researchers. And naturally, there are not many of them to begin with because the, to be an independent researcher, it, it takes time and it takes funding and that's it's hard to come by. And sure, you can do it in your spare time, but then it's difficult to stay focused on doing it. So I think that like the names that, for example, if I can name a few people that are working with progress studies, I can name, for example, Matt Clancy, Jason Crawford, Alexei Guzzi, and myself. We're all working full-time full on progress studies in, in different ways and from different angles. 
but if you could point to like in code like more like part-time prioritized researchers like well it was myself of course because I, I before i started working full-time but it's difficult to like actually get deep into something part-time so yeah that, that might be a lack of a academic support and then the difficulties of doing it independent independently and I guess that, yeah, maybe on the independent side, you could say, why do independent researchers exist in the first place? Because in academia, you kind of, you publish to, in academia, as an independent researcher, you don't necessarily have to publish, but why would anyone publish just because, and I guess that maybe the, the number of people that are intrinsically interested in looking at things that like, oh, this thing could be way better. Let's write about how to fix this. It's not that great. Like maybe people take things for granted. It's like science flowing down and yeah, that's it. But then you don't get this, okay, could we be doing better? That's the kind of question that it's more difficult because then you are moving from looking at, at a trend that's slowing down and moving to, okay, what are the solutions? What could be done? And exhaustively going over all the possibilities that, that you could be working on, that takes more effort. And it's an effort that if you don't like it intrinsically, you get little out of. It's not like you're going to make lots of money with ads on your progress studies blog, because it's, it's a relatively niche thing. It's the ultimate public good. It could be a huge benefit for everyone, but privately it's difficult. <laughs> Right. So far, it's not too profitable. And I think what you're saying about it having to be intrinsically motivating is certainly true. But I, I also wonder whether maybe now that it's becoming more of a thing, I feel like people talk a lot about it on Twitter and in the whole Silicon Valley tech sphere. It seems like it's maybe becoming more of a trend, it's becoming more of a maybe also moral duty. Like I was reading a couple articles that really framed it that way, that it is in humanity's responsibility to look back at our past and look back at the great things that have happened to afford us a rather comfortable life if you look at the arc of history so far. And I think now you might have people, and you can comment on whether you see it like that, but you might have more of a culture of actually having progress as a duty to, to investigate further. Yeah, I mean, so, so on what you mentioned earlier, I think, that, I think it is true that people talk more about it and you will see more people interested in various progress trends. But in a way, I guess there is like a, there is some gap between being interested in progress and being and or doing progress studies research. And in some sense, there used to be this, web, I don't know if it's still around, there's this website called I Fucking Love Science. And so like one can you know, appreciate science or can appreciate progress, but then there is a, another step to actually be doing science and actually making progress. I think the former it's easy. I think you can consume science. I think it's relatively easy to, to do, but to produce it, that takes, say, for example, when there's an article I wrote on this whole, whether we should fund more people or we should fund projects, it took a week or two of reading lots of papers. Now, sometimes it's not like the reading themselves is not sometimes extremely exciting. Like you're reading, you're looking for a specific piece of information that may or may not be in that paper you're, you're reading. And you have to sometimes just be looking at one page for 15 minutes to see if any sentence sparks some interesting thought. And if you're like, you may be thinking, oh, I have better things to do than actually just reading these papers and writing these things. Like someone else will do it for me and I will just read it. And I think that's probably most people thinking that maybe they think their comparative advantage is not to doing, be doing Progress research, or rather, maybe they think that they are not good enough to be doing progress research. Maybe they look at my blog or some published articles and say, oh, if this is something I would never dream to be able to accomplish, I will just read these things and be grateful that people are doing it, but I will not do it myself. And the people that are actually doing it themselves, it's a, it's a smaller group compared to the ones that are excited about the work itself. Yeah, so maybe that's also a little bit of critical implicit knowledge between bloggers like you, for example, you know, the time it takes and maybe also the frustration, but people from the outside maybe see it as a very polished, neat thing and might think that you came up with that in like an afternoon or something. So what would you say to people who are thinking about starting something, but are facing those barriers that you alluded to? Do you have any advice? Yeah, there is one thing that, that I would say, which is something that I wish I had been told uh, 10 years ago, which is that to put it simply or to put it in a pithy way, you can do stuff that is that you look at experts and you could be them. I think mostly those experts, those smart people, they are like, sure, they may be intelligent, but it's not that they are special and they have this obscure uh, <laughs> talent that you cannot achieve. It's just that they have spent the time in doing the thing. They have spent years of their life putting time into it. Now, you don't have to put times of your, of your life in doing it because they, you can potentially contribute by just putting just months just to get up to speed in a given field. But just, just, just the thinking that if you commit to it and you put time into it, you can actually contribute. That I think it's, that should be just the key thought. But I guess it's two things. One is the notion that you can actually contribute, that no one is going to stop you and that you can actually can. You don't have to have a PhD to do what a PhD is doing. And then the second is, 
which is perhaps where a lot of, even if one thinks, yeah, like, sure, I'm very smart and I can read all these papers. And then they say, okay, what should I write about? Isn't everything, hasn't everything already been told? That's something that I guess many people will be thinking about. And to some extent, yes, a lot of things has been already been written about. But then there is, I think, one easy starting point to break out of that, which is, yes, many things have been written about, but you could say, okay, instead of as an easy entry point, pick some piece of research or something published out there and find mistakes in it. I think it's more difficult to create and to propose something new, and it's easier to find mistakes. So as an initial point, just find, find mistakes and do our critical reviews, perhaps book reviews of things you find. And now, hopefully, out of you will find critics, and those critics will hopefully spark positive thoughts, thoughts of not just saying this is bad, but actually we could be doing this thing instead. And those thoughts can actually become longer contributions to the field. Would you recommend any resources for people specifically interested in progress studies to get their hands dirty? Yeah, I think for progress studies, I can point to, I think it's four people that I know that are like full-time producing progress studies material. We all have a slightly different angles, interestingly. So one is, for example, Jason Crawford. He has his blog called Roots of Progress, and he has been working on the historical aspect of progress studies and how we got here, how the evolution happened, the, the history of risk technologies, like the history of steel, for example, how we got to have steel in the first place. And he has been pushing this concept that he calls industrial literacy, which is understanding how things around us actually work. I think appreciating, for example, how a combustion engine actually does what it does. And that's a way to break us out of the complacency of thinking that things just magically work and that there is some arcane knowledge about them and that it's guaranteed. I said, no, there were actual people that actually made these things be the way they are. Someone else that I can point to is Matt Clancy, he's an economist who is, I believe, based in Iowa. And he is writing a newsletter on the latest research papers on science of science and, and economic growth, productivity growth, and so on and so forth. I think his newsletter is called New Things Under the Sun. Then we have, well, we have my own blog, Nintendo.com, where I write about various things. I wrote about both science of science, but also progress in a specific technology. I've written about progress in everything from nuclear energy to like building skyscrapers or Moore's Law and semiconductors. And then we have Alexei Guzzi, who has been writing some, both uh, in the past critical reviews of various pieces of science, uh, indicating how science can go wrong and which mistakes one has to look for in, in articles. He's also written about a piece that explains how the sciences work, how perhaps one way of putting it is how, despite the fact that incentives are not perfectly aligned with doing good science, people still manage to do good science by playing around with incentives. And he will be launching, I think, a new initiative called, I think, uh, New Science later this year. Awesome. And since we are mentioning those people working on the frontiers of the science of science, what is the implicit knowledge in your field that you feel like holds true generally, but it's not necessarily explicitly stated? What has to be learned in you, maybe through experience by everyone you enter in this field, but it doesn't have a real reason. It could be written down. It could be shared more publicly. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess from the outside, like the, the explicit knowledge is the thing that's written on papers and blog posts on various places. The implicit knowledge comes when judging, is this thing I've just read, is it correct? Is it good? Or perhaps also another part of, in a way, implicit knowledge is the kind of mental frameworks that lead you not just to read something, but also to come up with new ideas or build off what you're reading. I think having the, the right, your creativity tuned to the right setting so that you can fruitfully expand upon what you are Reading. So I guess those things are there are heuristics that that one can point to there. Things like let's say all sequels a randomized trial is better than an observational study, or all sequels a large sample is better than a smaller sample, or all or, or sequels if there are many papers pointing one direction it's probably too that if there are fewer papers, or perhaps even if an effect is too big to be true, it's maybe, maybe it's not true because maybe it ended up being so big because the researcher had incentive to be impressive, to get some press release or something. So maybe one should be wary of very uh, impressive effects. Another one might be wear fancy statistics. One can throw lots of controls and do random things and like regression discontinuity studies. And you can, in a way, the fancier you get, you're trying to, to extract more signal out of the noise. That's the reason why you would use a fancier statistical method. But at the same time, you're ex exposing yourself to actually picking something where there is nothing. Well, that's, if, if, if you amplify noise, you may just find signal, but maybe you're just amplifying the noise itself. You're just deluding yourself into thinking that you have actually finding a true result. Yeah, I think those are the, the key things which are revolve around the idea of interpreting the research itself and coming up with new research ideas that are implicit in that. You may find these heuristics written there, but I guess that finding those, like reading about those heuristics may feel like reading a handbook about how to ride a bicycle. You can read it as much as you want, but you will not be knowing how to drive a bicycle until you actually do it. Right, so 
I suppose your view of it is not necessarily that you can write it down and compile it in a more centralized way. Not at all. Actually, it uh, it bothers me greatly. Like the, the idea of implicit knowledge, the it, its existence, it's I think it's really bad because it means that there is huge like fields of knowledge or, or classes of knowledge that will not be open for everyone, and that that will make it difficult for others to get in. So I spend a lot of time thinking about how to open up uh, the world. For example, I've even I've even written a brief article about how I write blog posts. To try to record myself while I write a blog post, what goes on my screen? What things am I looking at? When I'm thinking out loud, what am I thinking about? So I, I'm trying to open up that to the world just to show that what I'm doing, perhaps even if it seems impressive, that's just to show what's behind the scenes, how much work goes and how much back and forth and trial and error goes behind all of that work. So I think that will be definitely my goal to show that you don't need, let's say, a, a PhD, you're actually doing something like spending five years or something to get the knowledge that you should be able to get the knowledge way by reading or by having it in the right way. I think that unlike riding a bicycle, riding a bicycle involves a motor skill to train your muscle and your mental muscle coordination. Science is not like that. Sure, it might be to the specific experiments you may need to actually do them physically with your hands to actually know how it goes. But most of it is not like that. Most of it is cognitive work and you can do it by in principle, by reading, by discussing with other experts and, and that, that should be necessary in theory. Now, some people may disagree with that and I think that they will disagree with this, especially in biology, that without having done benchwork and sitting in a lab, you cannot truly grasp biology, but I disagree with them. And hopefully I'm right and we will be able to, to open up all this implicit knowledge to the world. Yeah, I think that's such an important and I think also undervalued point, just the divide between all the explicit and all the implicit knowledge in the world. If you just talk to the experts, which is why I'm starting this project, it's like to make more explicit what might be implicit otherwise, like what might be told at dinner parties in reclusive circles of people all working on the same thing. But but young people, for example, just starting out, they, they have no real comprehension. So Thanks for providing that information. I definitely think like you just filming yourself, writing blog posts and trying to make it more accessible and also tying your audience into the messiness, just seeing that there's actual work involved. I, I think that's a really good thing. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, th I think that the like the audiovisual medium is great to, to send certain kinds of messages. In, and in that case, if you look at, for example, at, uh, let's say, programming, coding, you, you can find, I think I find it very helpful to, to watch videos of, uh, of people actually programming in, in that you see that it's not just like a linear process like you just like come up with an idea but you get stuck you have to look for information and you see exactly what sort of cues and things lead people to say look things in a stack overflow if you're coding something or that you have to write and rewrite the same piece of code and when people realize oh this thing now it has grown too much and now it's, we should rewrite it to something like that there is a journal that's called jovi the journal of visualized experiments where people f record themselves doing actual experiments in the life sciences although this, the, the journal is, is a access so it's not extremely accessible there are only a few experiments that you can see but it's quite useful that you can actually when people talk about pcr or western blotting you can see those things being done live and important is one additional thing that i think the videos add in, in value is that when you write something you usually see the final polished form of something in the video you, you get the whole thing and i think the whole thing is important because something as, as david chapman uh, has written in his blog meaningness.com there's this idea of improvisation. Uh, so you can read a recipe, let's say you can read a recipe for how to make an omelet or the or, or perfect fries. But what if you fuck up? Uh, what if you don't use the right amount of oil? What, what if ingredients are wrong? You have to improvise. You have to fix the recipe as you go. That, that kind of like real-time fixing is something that it's easier to do when someone begins doing something and then they have to improvise to, to fix. And you can see exactly that improvisation. Do you think that YouTube and the popularity of the video format is making things better, as in tying more people into the lives of others and their activities? Or do you think there's still like a barrier? Because I see a lot of young people maybe consuming a lot on those platforms and maybe even getting a grasp of the lives of others, as in explored in the video format, but, but they're still not really producing a lot. There's, there still seems to be some jumps between consuming and producing. And I wonder how one goes about maybe reducing that effect, uh, getting more people to, to jump. Yeah, yeah. There is, I think these days, some people that, let's say, that you can go on YouTube and, and search like a one day in the life of a, of a postdoc in a life science lab. And you can see they, I think some of them, they see the guy takes a GoPro and then they put a GoPro in their head and then they just like record everything they see that day, which is quite an interesting take that the things they do that tend to happen in a group setting, uh, seeing that, that there are others involved, and maybe they don't want to be filmed, maybe they, they don't want the research to be made public that early. There are some of those elements in there. With with programming, let's say it's 
usually like people just like doing it on their own. And there's also a culture of openness in programming. There's a huge open source world out there and the world is like open science. It's not as developed maybe as open source. And also, I guess some of it might be just habit. For example, for a long time, people did, did not upload, let's say the code and the data they used to generate, produce the figures and results in a paper. And now some people are starting to do so. Now, it doesn't take much effort to do. You just need to upload some files. But there was no norm. There was nothing pushing you to do it. And now there is a norm that if you want to be a good player, you have to do it. Maybe we'll start to see like people recording themselves like, oh, I, I guess I go to the data set. Uh, you will not believe what happened next. It's doing some clickbait style videos. It's people going through their science. And then you can see maybe how something goes from looking at some data to actually here's a paper in this journal and, and seeing the video of the whole journey. Really quite interesting to do. And maybe that would be maybe an interesting project to do for a filmmaker to, in the same way, so maybe one, one example of this would be, there was this filmmaker that followed the progress of a Henry Markram and the Human Brain Project for I think 10 years or something like that. He, he committed his career to document this whole thing from when he started and how it changed. So you could have like camera crews in labs doing a documentary about how research happens. And I'm sure maybe a lot of it is it's going to be, and it will be not as exciting as people may expect. It will be just like daily work. It will be meetings, uh, people just like proposing ideas, but you will still see what the process looks like. And hopefully as you record more and more and more of this work in different labs, you will see the actual breakthroughs. But then you will have the whole sequence of events going from let's say a random person sitting on a corner in a room that was distracted, suddenly says, hey, what if we do this experiment? And then people are like, wait, yes, it's actually a good idea. And then people try it and then and, they, and then it fails, but then that gives them another idea to, to try something else. And then that idea is actually promising and it ends up being published. And then someone has built on top of that and then you can follow that, that story and how it unfolds. It's really, really exciting to see. Yeah, and I suppose it's just inevitable. You cannot follow someone for like 24 hours a day. And, and I think you follow someone for a year, uh, a research project or, or an individual as well. It will probably boil down to the exciting parts being cut and, and it will just be <laughs> a, nice, a nice, neat storyline again. So I feel like you can maybe not even outrun that inevitability. But even like having those storylines is, I think, a little undervalued. Like a lot of films, I think, that are coming out today, they're not necessarily the social network. Like they're not necessarily about motivating people to get into tech or making it uh, like a fancy kind of thing. It's mostly negative on, on technology, on science as well, and presenting doomsday scenarios. So, so even if you have, you know, a neat storyline that might not even express the daily yeah. life of scientists, it, it will still probably be um, net beneficial. Yeah, I agree. So in general, what would you say for now remains unsolved in the science of science? What are like your top things that you're still thinking about and not really come to an answer for? I guess one question in general would be what I like to call the halting problem in science. So the, the halting problem in computer science is if I give you a program, can you come up with a way of telling if it's going to stop or will it get stuck in a for loop or something? In science, it would be when you are funding a field or a researcher or a project, when should you stop? Should you say, okay, this thing, it's going to take 20 years. So I'm going to give you 20 years to do it. Or should you do, okay, I'm going to fund you for one year. And then if it's not working, I'm just going to cut it. But what if it takes five years to show results? And if you cut it in one year, you will see nothing. What's the right way to think about those trade-offs? Or rather, is, is there either a field specific way or a general way to think about these kind of questions? Someone that will be funding science, let's say that you can maybe suppose that you are the U.S. Congress, and you have to give money to do string theory, and you have to give money to do cancer research. How should you think about those questions? Currently, I think a lot of it happens through lobbying. I think maybe the reason there is a National Institute of Health, and there's not the National Institute for Material Science, let's say, is just because you have the perfect storm between pharma and, and like patient associations pushing for cancer and like health research and batteries, they don't seem as exciting, but it's not like there's a rational decision to say, okay, we expect these fields to be more or less promising or less and we're to fund them in these proportions. Uh, it doesn't quite happen like that. Now, it might be naive to think perhaps that, that we can actually rationally think about those questions come up with precise amounts that we can fund this field or the other or fund someone for five or 20 years. But surely we can come up with some vague heuristics, rules, or something better than what we have now, kind of more solid frameworks to, to actually fund science and unorganized science at a high level. So what do you think are some exponentials in your field or generally that you think will keep on growing? And what is promising in your eyes in the next 10 to 20 years? Where will the world move in your vision? If, if there is one exponential that really influences the way science happens is that we are seeing more and more papers. Like the, the amount of, of published research that's out there is increasing uh, greatly. 
Now that's good and bad. It's, it's good in the sense that, well, well, there is more research, more potentially, more potential for breakthroughs to be out there. But in the sense that it's difficult to find what's good. It's difficult to find better research. It's difficult to find what's relevant to US scientists. And it's difficult to find what's relevant coming from outside of the field. Potentially, even that exponential might have fueled by the decrease in average quality. That, that's also a hypothesis that has been considered, that science used to be like only the only the top elite scientists would be actually doing science. Now it has been democratized for more and more people. And that, again, that can be a good thing. But then that also means that maybe there's some people in the system that are publishing yes to stay afloat without producing as much as this quote elite scientist. This is a, what some people call the Newton hypothesis versus the Ortega hypothesis. That is, that is it science a matter of the elites or is it science a matter of the masses? That we need lots of mediocre researchers to actually produce the substrate upon which this breakthroughs will happen. That's something I've, I've been looking into recently and, and that I will be writing about soon. Some other exponentials include, interestingly, the rise in power, power in general in machine learning, both in computational capabilities, but also in how good the algorithms are, especially in the field of uh, natural language processing. This is important in that we might be able to better grapple with all these mountains of scientific data through the power of machine learning. As in, a, There's, for example, some research that points to that you can feed a given system lots of papers. In this case, it was in material science. And the system can, to some extent, predict what's going to be researched next. It can also predict what compounds are similar to each other or what compounds have different properties, similar properties, and so on. Purely through the linguistic structure of the text is something that you, are, you can probably do as a human being, and you are probably doing it in, in your brain when reading all these papers. That's how you're probably generating hypotheses. If we can automate this, even if it's not perfect, just the fact that we, you, you, you can get 80% good ideas, but millions of them, and then you can manually go through them, that's really powerful. That certainly sounds promising. What would you wish you would have known 10 years ago to bring it back to the past? 10 years ago, I was starting university and I was starting a career in industrial engineering, which then became a career in aerospace engineering, which then went somewhere completely different. Back then, I was not interested in biology at all. I had some interest in aerospace, in computer science perhaps, but not in biology. That was probably because I had been taught biology at a very simple level that this is what we know. And it seemed very much closed in that it didn't seem like a dynamic field where you see breakthroughs every single day. I guess it's like anatomy. Like when you study anatomy, which is the study of, let's say, of the different parts of the, of the body and organs, like it is what it is. Like we are not making huge breakthroughs in anatomy anymore because we have already mapped everything there is. So biology was taught like anatomy would be taught in a very closed way. I think that what they would have liked to be to know is how much rich the field of biology is and how much progress we are seeing there. I think that maybe even in high school, a teacher should try to, I mean, it's probably very easy to do just to pick a bunch of interesting new research articles and discoveries from the last year and actually teach them, as in teach them, hey, like these things we're telling you as, as, as students, they are not static, they are changing all the time. And, and here are some examples, and, and you could explain more or less these new discoveries and how they are changing our classical understanding of, of first phenomena. That, I think, would have taken me down the path of biology way earlier. Yeah, and I really want to highlight a recent article by James Somers on that. And I, I think it was called something like, I should have loved biology, or it's certainly talking about his experience with the subject seeming so definite in the way it's taught in the educational system compared to all the open questions. There's so much wonder also to be voiced more frequently, especially by teachers. I wonder if there's any works on encouraging more fascination with biology that, that come to mind for you as well. I'm probably guessing that there is, but because I, I can't tell you from a very like top-down way, I guess that one way one could come into bio. If, so if, if if I show you a picture or, or a video of an animation of how a cell works, how all the molecules and proteins interact, what's going on inside a cell, that's really astonishing. And I think that it will do two things. Either it will make you believe that God designed that, that thing, or it will just or it will just make you buy or get the molecular biology of a cell textbook, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that would be it. That would be watching us reading like, like maybe inside of a cell 3D or something like that, or molecular machines looking something like that. And just like being astonished at the complexity of, 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 of life at the molecular level, that's probably does it. I think that probably that, that's where the magic lies. If you look at organs at a very high level, and let's say the stomach, like food comes in and it gets digested, it, it, and then it goes to the intestine and then it gets absorbed, blah, blah, blah. Or, or the, the air comes into the lungs and we absorb the air into the blood. It's very simplistic. It's very, it's very close in that it doesn't spark the imagination or it doesn't instill wonder. At the molecular level, it does. It's this sense of awe. Oh, like we have these tiny things, all these like millions of arrivals of working perfectly, not, not all the time, but like producing proteins every minute, like lots of them in every single cell. And they are bumping into each other randomly. And it's not 
it's not as we would design, let's say, an assembly line where you meticulously place every robot, let's say, to, to assemble every part of a car. No, you have like things bumping randomly into each other and somehow it works. That's, I think, probably what would do the trick to get someone into biology. Yeah, the messiness, but also on a quantitative level, I think, of the subject itself. There, like this website, and as I understand it, the book, Cell Biology by the Numbers, is really helpful. I have really enjoyed digging into that. Yes, my analogy for biology, or a way to transmit that sense of wonder would be, suppose that you take a bottle, or let's say um, a swimming pool, and then you throw in a bunch of iron, like a cube of iron, and a laptop, and then some salt, and then some plastic, and then you stir it, and then it becomes an airplane. That's the magic of biology. If you come into it from an engineering point of view or a naive mechanical point of view, you're like, there's no way it's going to work. Like you, you need conscious action and meticulously designed to get things to work. There's no way a mess can get orderly at this higher level as it does in biology, but it does. And that's, that's the beauty of it. Some computational analogies if with biology, you can interpret the way different proteins interact as you can draw arrows between those proteins to say that actually they may be bumping into each other randomly, but they do something interesting when they bump with these specific proteins and not the others. So you can try to impose some order in there. You can also look at ribosomes, let's say, which basically ribosome is like, here comes a DNA and there's an mRNA and then the ribosome will read the mRNA, then take an, a nucleotide from the tRNA and then piece together bit by bit one protein. So you can see that actually as a precise assembly line. So you just need to change the way you think about that as in, instead of having a robot that, that picks the exact piece, it will be as if uh, I throw at you lots of components and the robot knows which one to pick. So the robot will say, no, yes. And then it puts it and then it keeps doing that. So you can build those kinds of understanding for, for different parts of a, of a cell. And are you aware of any efforts that are being made to go into that direction now? Do you see any efforts in changing the way biology is taught or is this all just criticism for now? There are, there is some. So there is, there is, for example, I don't know if it's a publication or if it's a, a course, but it's basically biology taught using 3D animations, 3D animations of everything. So you don't learn, for example, oh, the Krebs cycle or glycolysis, like you learn exactly what those things look like. And when you hear sugar, you think of a white powder, you think of a molecule with a given structure that actually bumps into certain ways and fits in a specific places within, uh, within enzymes and, and, and other things. There is that. I also believe that Laura Deming was, I think, interested at some point in something around those lines. I don't know, it's more of a personal private project uh, for a small group. At a more at scale, so to speak, I am not aware there are like bits and pieces here and there of attempts to explain parts by different people of, of biology, but I'm not aware of, of any like unified way of uh, let's make biology cool and all inspiring again. <laughs> I hope that will gain some momentum in the coming years. It's a super fascinating subject. It deserves better. Yeah. So to tie it back to the science of progress and the, the science of science, what do I not know that I don't know? What important questions have I, have I not asked you as of right now? Well, I guess there are a few. One would be this idea that experts are not special, <laughs> which I guess I keep coming to it because it really made an impact in my own life back then as in a, this, this feeling that, quote, that you're not good enough, that you, you, that you can't do something that seems very challenging, but then I can actually do it. I'm, I'm not less than this expert. I can actually be where they are given enough time. And perhaps the effort it takes to get to the frontier is way less than the effort it takes to push the frontier. So to get to understand where something stands, it's very accessible. It's, it's more difficult once you get there where to go next. That's the difficult bit. How have you also in your own experience changed your thinking or learned about what steps to take next? Yeah, so the way a frontier looks like, or rather, let's say the way, like the, what is not the frontier, the way it looks like is solid. There are narrative stories around it that you can tell. People agree on them. They have been in some way solidified and established over decades, very well confirmed. And you can pick them up from various books. There are usually lots of resources about them. You can be confident that they're more or less solid. And in general, if, if I can summarize in a word, there is certainty in those things. Now, when you get to the frontier, what you find, it's uh, just like this frontier is made of researchers doing work. So you find one paper, let's say, and the paper, it feels more like, like collecting stamps or collecting coins. There is no immediate narrative that you can put this paper on. It's its own piece of work that maybe there's a world where they fit. There is a, there's a very narrow niche that where the paper is coming from, but how do you put that paper in the whole of biology, let's say, it's unclear because we haven't had time to actually assess how important that is. So, that, so again, the frontier is characterized by uncertainty. So when you're in the frontier, you find yourself like finding all this piece of research, they come to you, you read them, and you wonder, is this true? Uh, should I even bother reading this? Does, it, does this matter? Will this thing be relevant in years on time? 
it's, it's difficult to know. So you end up going with heuristics uh, at the end. You end up saying, okay, well, this lab, I more or less trust them. So it's probably going to be okay. My friend who I trust likes these papers. Maybe it's going to be fine. So you end up relying on this very humane based, uh, very personal heuristics uh, rather than um, here is this textbook or here is this meta-analysis that shows that yes, it's the case. No, you end up with a very personal case-by-case -case approach to, to what's happening on the frontier. Now to push the, the frontier ahead, that's where we where we fall back on this on this implicit and tacit knowledge that I wish was uh, more qualified. That's something I also wish that, that we're looking to this year or the next. How can we, in a way, automate discovery? How can we make these heuristics into something that you could just follow? You could just say, I give you one area, one problem, and you can follow these rules and you can come up with ideas to think of the next step. Maybe one technique that one can use to push the frontier in, in some area is taking your assumptions and flipping them. That, that is saying, assume this thing is false. Or rather than assuming that something is false, you can just take something that you take for granted and question it somehow. So one example that they gave in a, in a blog post is, suppose you want to build a, a build a better microscope. If you want to build a better, better microscope, you will think of, we need a better lens maybe, or maybe we need the crystal clearer or something like that. That's if you're in a paradigm where you're using optical microscopes. But then you can say, okay, what if we modify the sample? What if instead of making the apparatus, because ultimately you, you step back and, and you're not just using a, a tool, you're you're in a setup, you're in a context in which there is a tool and there is a sample. And also there is nothing that prohibits you from playing with a sample. It's just that in your initial framing, you're overthinking of a machine. In your reframing, you include the sample. Now, what if we make the sample fluorescent and now we can use different lights to look at it? What if we make the sample bigger? which is the, the basis of expansion microscopy. So you can, if you make it bigger, then it might be easier to, easier to see what's going on in, in the sample. So I guess there is like a life hack to, to discovery. Those are probably the things, enumerating assumptions and questioning them one by one until something interesting pops in and then following the thread to see where it goes. Certainly, it seems like a good heuristic. Now I would like to move to a more personal part that is more concerned with yourself, your ideas about life generally as a person that's more experienced. Firstly, and this could be related to progress and no way is this to separate those two areas, but what idea, area, book, or, or life experience even are you most excited about right now? I think I can point to two things. They are some amazing things I'm working on. That I, I'm, I'm not excited because they could lead somewhere very interesting. One of them is this project I'm doing separately. I have not written about it uh, yet, but I will probably, if everything goes well, show up as something tangible later this year, which is looking at various scientific fields, talking with scientists that are practicing in there, seeing why are we not making faster progress, and then devising projects targeted at actually fixing those, those projects, saying, okay, um, if we're not making faster progress in here, if, if people are not doing a lot of research here, what can we do? And then trying to find funders for these projects. And then ideally, very cool if actually I, I make one of these projects happen, if I find a, a match between here's this community that needs this, and then here is someone that's willing to, to, to sponsor that uh, happen. The second thing I'm interested in is in my longer term project also during this year about thinking about these things I mentioned earlier that we don't know much about the holding problem with science. How should we allocate funding? Should we fund people or projects or how should we mix these two things? I wish, um, I hope to have an answer or a better answer for these questions uh, as the year goes. I think this will be quite useful in that it will not be just an exploration of what people have said about the topic, but it will be more of an authoritative way of saying this is what we should do and these are the things people have proposed, they probably won't work. And so we should try these ones first instead. That maybe it will look like a policy paper as to how science should be reformed. And then I, I will see how that can be made in, into reality somehow. And I suppose another explicit, implicit, since this is the common thread around this podcast, what's something nobody will tell me that I should really know? What is something you discovered in your life that society or employees or even friends conceal, maybe not even consciously, that is really important to know, in your opinion? I guess one might be that to be taken seriously in, in one given field, this cannot be very subtle, but the way you say things, the way you phrase things, the, the awareness you show of certain key findings in a given field, those things can convey in a very subtle way how serious you are about a given field. If you, have, if you just come across a bunch of papers, you read them, that person is different from the person that has to spend uh, a year in that field. They will know more context about something and that will show. 
the specific ways in which these this shows are difficult to point to, that, that, that's one of them. Another one, it's, I already mentioned it, this is the idea that you can actually do things. And <laughs> it's just the idea that you can just go into a field and you can work there. Like no one is going to, to say no. Uh, of course, it may be difficult to do so outside of a lab. But I feel like with research, if we go back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the, the idea that you could drop out of uni or even out of high school in some cases and go start a startup, that was unthinkable. That sounds like as if I told you, let's fly to the moon tomorrow. Are you joking? That's not something that you can do. But now it's something with, with, that is within what I like to call the realm of the possible. It's like the, that landscape of, of things that there for you to pick. And sure, they, it may be scary to pick this, this unusual paths, but you can pick them. Like They should be on the table and they should be assessed as potential paths to follow. In my own case, for example, I was working uh, in a recently well-paid job at, at Twitter. I had a very nice, comfortable job that had very good career prospects and with, with a very in-demand skill coding. And now I've chosen complete career uncertainty to do <laughs> progress studies in science and science. Now, that's, that's something that I didn't know I was going to be doing, let's say, five years ago. One has to be willing to take opportunities that come to you and say yes, and just see where they go. Maybe if, if there is one one way to wrap this up is that the, what I like to call the, the interestingness heuristic, that is, if something seems interesting or if something puts you in a position from which you expect you will go to somewhere interesting, just say yes to that. That will probably actually work. And um, maybe you will not know exactly where you're going to end up, but you will probably end up with something that you are probably proud that you actually made the decision to get there. That's a really important lesson. I suppose, lastly, do you think it's more important to know the written explicit rules or the unwritten implicit rules? And what is an unwritten rule that you discovered in your life? So I would say that if we had to choose, maybe saying why not both would be a, a, a fake answer. But if we had to choose, it would be the, ex the explicit rules. I would say that as the great uh, Spanish painter Pablo Picasso allegedly said, you have to learn the, the rules like a pro if you want to break them like an artist. So you, you have to learn the, the basics and what everyone takes for granted before you can break them all and do the weird thing. So yes, definitely, I think explicit comes first. And I think it will be difficult to make it otherwise. I think implicit rules that I've learned, I've mentioned a few. If I can mention... I can think of some that, if, well, I guess this is maybe not so much implicit, but it's more of a life lesson, which is that being very online, just being like writing a lot online, being on Twitter, having a blog, those things can be very helpful career-wise in general, or even just like for your own life, like the, you will get to meet uh, more people from other, other countries. Uh, maybe that, let's say that you are visiting Seattle or Berlin, someone may message you to you, hey, let's get in touch. And that may lead to some uh, interesting connections. So yeah, def definitely being online, it, it's really, I think it's really key. I think it's really, some people undervalue it. They say, oh, like being online, you such a waste of, of time. And I think the mistake those people make is that being online, yes, you may be able to focus on doing one thing, but you may be able to explore and get exposed to ideas you didn't know you wanted. <laughs> as yeah. as I, and, and that's something that's very important for creative work, just being exposed to random things just to randomness because you never know where where interesting things are going to be coming from yeah i think that's a great way to end this thank you so much for being on i i really enjoy talking yes it was a pleasure thank you <laughs>